chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come now to your holy word. God, thank you for the gift of the scriptures. God, thank you that we have the scriptures in our own language. What a blessing and a privilege that is. God, thank you that through your holy word, you instruct your people. You reveal light and knowledge and wisdom to us. You show us how we ought to live so that we might experience blessing from the hand of God. Lord, we pray that you would give us attentiveness to your word this morning, that we would pay attention to what we hear as Jesus commands us. So Lord, would you give us attentive and open hearts today? Would you free us from any distraction this morning that would seek to rob us of the things that you want to say to us? God, we pray that you would meet us in this time, that you would speak to your people, and that we would have ears to hear, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and grab a seat, and good morning once again to everyone. As I said, I think last week or the week before, Mark chapter 4 represents a big change in the gospel of Mark. Because after the scribes had committed the unforgivable sin at the end of chapter 3, we notice that Jesus began doing something differently. Jesus began teaching in parables. Now parables, of course, are short, memorable stories that convey a deeper spiritual or moral truth. So again, there are these these short kind of memorable stories. Everybody can get their head around the at least surface level of a parable. 
But embedded in a parable is some real meaning, some real message that's moral or spiritual in nature. And, and therefore, a parable is a very effective teaching tool. People are able to latch on to it and they're able to hold on to that memorable truth. We still use parables of sorts even to this day. I can remember a few years ago teaching my oldest son Judah the story, this is one of Aesop's fables, but the story of the boy who cried wolf. And of course, we all know that story. There was a young boy who was the shepherd of the town's sheep, and he was bored, as I'm sure shepherds often are. He's out there very bored, and he decides, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go, and I'm going to start screaming to the townspeople that there's a wolf, and he does. And all the townspeople drop what they're doing, and they run out there to take on this wolf and protect all of their sheep, and of course, there's no wolf attacking. It's made up. And so the frustrated, frustrated townsfolk go back to town and they're working again. And a few days later, the boy does the same thing again. And the townspeople run out to fight off the wolf. And there's no wolf. And they walk back to the town super frustrated. Until one day, a wolf actually shows up and is actually threatening the sheep. And this young boy screams out to the townspeople, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. And everybody just ignores him. And nobody goes out to show up and help. And the sheep are eaten by the wolf. The moral stated at the end of the Greek version of this story says this, this shows how liars are rewarded. Even if they tell the truth, no one believes them. That's the message. That's the moral embedded in the boy who cried wolf. And it's memorable. We can all hold on to that. Jesus, of course, is famous, more famous than anybody for teaching in parables. But the difference is that Jesus' parables were typically much deeper than the one that I just told you. And that makes sense because after all, Jesus is here revealing to the world the mysteries or the secrets of the kingdom of God. And so his parables generally needed explanation if people hoped to grasp their meaning. No wonder Jesus cautions his listeners in verse 24 to pay attention to what you hear. Grasping his meaning required a serious commitment to attentive listening. It would require a heart that was open to the word of God. A heart that was ready to understand and receive and do the things that Jesus instructed. Now, the controlling idea of the parables that we find in Mark chapter 4 could be summarized this way. Let's just orient our minds kind of big picture on all of the parables here in chapter 4. We could, we could put it this way, and I'm going to set this on the screen for us if you want to write this down, but the controlling idea of the parables of Mark chapter 4 could be summarized this way. The kingdom of God is present, but in unexpected ways. The kingdom of God is present. Okay, Jesus is the king, so the king has come, and the, the kingdom is among them. The kingdom is present now, but it's present in unexpected ways. And this, friends, is why the parables of Jesus were so incredibly useful and valuable to his first disciples and why they are still so valuable to us today. Because, listen, the kingdom of God, which Jesus ushered in 2,000 years ago, did not match up to the expectations that the people had. There were sort of two views that were the main, or you could say the dominant views among the Jewish people at the time of Jesus regarding the coming kingdom of God. 
The one view said when God's kingdom comes, what it's going to look like is the immediate overthrow of our Roman oppressors and the reestablishment of David's physical, literal kingdom here in the Holy Land, which is going to dominate everyone around the world. That's one vision. So again, the, the kingdom of God, when it comes, it's going to be immediate. It's going to be obvious. It's going to come in power. And it's going to, it's going to just reset the table of global politics. The other competing view was the idea that when God's kingdom did come, it would come as the final judgment. When God comes, he's going to judge the nations and he is going to bring equity and justice and righteousness and he's going to side with his people but judge the nations. And so it was going to be connected to, the arrival of the kingdom would be connected to the final day of God's judgment. So this is what people were expecting. This is what the people were looking for. And here comes Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior that God had sent them. And he doesn't do either of those things. He does things that are actually quite opposite. Jesus comes and he ushers in the kingdom of God. How? By preaching and teaching the gospel. By healing people of sicknesses and disabilities. By delivering people from demonic oppression and possession. And then ultimately by going to a cross where he's put to death by the very oppressors everybody thought he would come to overthrow. And so it's important for us to understand that for, for Jesus' first disciples and then later for Mark's first readers of his gospel, they were going to need some brand new categories for understanding what the real kingdom of God was going to look like if they were going to stick around on team Jesus. Because what Jesus brought in looked very, very different. And this made it very hard for people to square the idea, the idea that yes, God's kingdom has come with their present circumstances. They're looking at what's going on in the world and they're going, how, how could it be that God's kingdom is actually here? I wonder if you can relate to that. Or maybe people that you know can relate to that. What I mean is, is maybe you look at the, the world around us or you look at your own life and the circumstances of your life and you go, I'm really having a hard time understanding how it could be that God is actually ruling and reigning over this broken mess that we call planet Earth. Well, friends, the teaching of Jesus and the three parables we're going to study together this morning will offer us very, very helpful perspective, or you could say insight. The title of this morning's sermon is Insights into God's Kingdom. Insights into God's Kingdom. Jesus here is providing for his disciples, and for you and I by extension, unexpected insights into God's kingdom that are going to help stabilize our faith in the world as we know it. So let's look at them together. There's going to be three insights from these three parables. Here's insight number one, the first unexpected insight. It's covered in verses 21 through 25. God's kingdom, though concealed, is meant to be revealed. God's kingdom, though concealed, is meant to be revealed. Let's reread verses 21 through 25. 
And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, I told you Jesus' parables were deeper than the boy who cried wolf. What is Jesus talking about here? What is Jesus getting at here with this story, this, this illustration that he's using regarding a lamp? To answer that question, we need to first know this. That in Matthew's gospel, verse 25 here, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 25 in Matthew's gospel is embedded in the parable of the sower. So as Matthew's sharing the parable of the sower, that verse is actually in the parable of the sower, which we studied together last last week. And what that means is that this teaching is connected to that parable. Notice also, That here in this teaching that we just read together, in verse 23, it says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is a repeat of what we read in verse 9 in the parable of the sower. So there's a connection here between this teaching and the parable of the sower. Thus we can expect clues to interpreting this parable to be found there in the parable of the sower. With that in mind, let's carefully look at the text. Jesus begins here asking a rhetorical question, right? Of course, nobody brings a lamp into a room to stick it under a bed or to stick it under a couch or to put a basket over it. The only reason you bring a lamp into a room is in order to illuminate the room, to bring light to the room so that you can see in the darkness, so Jesus, again, is, is he's asking it in a question, but it's rhetorical. Everybody knows the answer. Of course you don't do that. You bring light into a room to bring illumination. Now he's going to further his point in verse 22. Luke's version of this verse is even easier to grasp the meaning of. So let me read Luke 8.17 for us. Jesus says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now we see that the light from the lamp in verse 21 is, reveal, or is referring to revelation, the revealing of secret or hidden things. Look again, it says, nor is anything secret that will not be known. So something is being grasped, something is being revealed. Nothing is secret that will not be known and come to light. So again, the light here is connected to revelation and knowledge, things that people are going to grasp. And this should bring all of us back to the parable of the sower. Because in the parable of the sower, Jesus talked about a secret that he was revealing to his disciples, but, but keeping hidden from everyone else. Look back at verse 10, chapter 4, Mark. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, 
to you has been given the secret, which we're reading about a secret down here in verse 21, or 22 rather. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So as we talked about last week, and I won't recover or cover again all of that ground, but as we talked about, Jesus explained that the reason that he taught in parables was both to reveal and conceal simultaneously. He was concealing the secrets of the kingdom of God from those who were outside of his circle of loyal disciples. And simultaneously, he was revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God to those who were inside his circle of loyal disciples. We see the same point reinforced again down in verse 34. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So again, there's a, the parables are being used to conceal knowledge from those on the outside and to re, uh, reveal knowledge to his own disciples. So, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is hiding the secrets of the kingdom in parables. He's hiding them there. But not from everybody, of course. He is revealing this knowledge to his disciples. After all, nobody brings a lamp into a room to hide it or to conceal it. So Jesus is revealing the secrets of the kingdom to his disciples. And he wants his disciples here to know that although the secrets of the kingdom are being hidden in parables, his intention is revelation. Now, why would Jesus feel the need to say this to his disciples? The answer is that they most likely needed this encouragement. There was only one verse in the parable of the sower last week that I did not comment on. Just totally ignored it. Some of you probably thought, how irresponsible of this preacher. Just glossed over that like it's just insignificant. Does anybody here know what verse I didn't even comment on last week? There was only one out of all 20. What kind of prize could I offer to you that would be really meaningful in this church to shout out an answer? I've got it. Whoever knows what verse I glossed over, you get a pass to go to the front of the bathroom line in our church. And it's good for a month. Like 10 people are in line, you just walk up and go, hey, I knew the verse. Out of my way. Anybody know? See, that just proves people only hear about 10% of what I say anyway. So I'm just kidding. So the one verse that I did not touch on was verse 13. And we're going to touch on it now. Mark 4, 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? It feels like a mild rebuke, does it not? It's a rebuke. And think about what that rebuke is revealing. It's revealing that even though Jesus' disciples had been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, the parable of the sower was beyond their comprehension too. They needed it explained to them. So how then were they any different than the scribes who weren't given access to understanding the parables? Well, the reason or the way that they were different is simply in this, that 
Jesus was willing to explain the meaning of the parable to them. Okay, when he shared the parable, they were just as lost as everybody else. But then Jesus pulled them aside and he actually told them the deeper meaning of the parable. Now we come to understand the connection to this teaching on the lamp. Although Jesus will continue teaching in parables, he wants to make sure his disciples know without a shadow of a doubt that his intention is not to hide or conceal the secrets of the kingdom of God from them. His intention is not to keep them in the dark. Jesus is saying to them, guys, I did not come into the world to hide God's kingdom. I came to reveal it. Therefore, he calls them to lean into his teaching and exercise spiritual discernment. In verse 23, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. It's an invitation. He's saying, you guys, come with me, follow along. Yes, I'm teaching in parables. Yes, they're confusing the masses, but don't worry about that. I'm here to make you know the secrets of the kingdom. I'm here to reveal knowledge to you. And therefore he challenges them in verse 24. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. It's an invitation. Jesus is calling them, lean in more. I'm reminding you of what I said back up in verse 11. To you, it has been given to know the secrets. Do not get discouraged. Follow along with me. Pay attention to my teaching. And with the measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. And guess what? Even more will be added to you. Now that word measure is referring to the instruments that were used in the marketplace at the time. So typically it was scales and it was weights where you would measure out goods that you were selling or buying. And it seems that Jesus is saying in effect here that those who give weight to my teaching will receive their fair share and then some. Verse 25, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now notice with me before we move into the next parable, that verse 25 here is both a promise and a warning. What's the promise? Well, the promise is this. Responding positively to God's revelation results in even greater light. To the one who gives weight to the teaching of Jesus. The one who takes it to heart. The one who applies it by faith. Jesus will continue to reveal more and more and more and more to them. What an incredible promise. Sometimes Christians will say things like, I wish I could get insights from God's word like so and so. And they point to some person that they feel like really seems to understand the Bible. Man, I wish I could have that. I wish I could get insights like so-and-so, or I wish I understood the Bible like that person. Maybe you feel that way. Well, friends, since we're talking a bit about secrets this morning, can I let you in on a little secret? I'm going to whether you say yes or no, so it's, it's fine that nobody said yes. Here's the secret. The great limitation to a believer's spiritual understanding is their own level of willingness to hear and heed the word 
of God. That's your great limitation. That's my great limitation. The great limitation to a believer's spiritual understanding is their own level of willingness to hear and heed the word of God. Now, for some of us, it might not be the only limitation. I understand that. But the great limitation is our own willingness to hear and heed, to listen and obey the word of God. Friend, you do not need to be a pastor or a theologian or have a seminary degree to be a person of deep and profound spiritual insight. Some of the people globally right now and historically throughout the church who understood God's word best were just common lay people. But they were people that had this characteristic about them. They loved the word of God. Like the psalmist, it was their meditation day and night, all day long. They're just chewing on God's word just more and more and more. And not just listening to understand and say, oh, I can explain these really deep parables to people. They were listening to it with a heart saying, I want to do that. Whatever new light comes in, I'm applying it. I'm going to obey the words of God. I'm going to implement this into my life. And with a heart like that, God says, I'll I'll give you more. And I'll give you more. And I'll give you more. And I'll give you more. That's the promise, friends. And so we need to be a people, every single one of us, who are making space in our lives, lots of space in our lives, to hear God's word. There is no way to have deep spiritual understanding apart from making lots of space in your life for the word of God. But again, I just have to be so clear about this. It's not just time in the word and space to hear it. We need space in our hearts for the word of God. What Jesus has been teaching in these parables already with the parable of the sower is the necessity to accept his word and to implement his word. We have to actually put these things into practice. Otherwise, we're truly walking in darkness. That's the promise. Here's the warning. The warning is basically this, that responding negatively to God's revelation results in increasing darkness. Jesus says to the the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Therefore, for the person who treats Jesus' teaching lightly, they see it having no value or significance. It makes no impact in their life. Whatever light they do have will eventually go out. This warning is true certainly for individuals. If that's the posture of your heart, you treat the word of God lightly, You don't give it much attention. It certainly has no transformative power in your life. Guess what? Whatever little light you might still have will eventually just go out. It'll be taken from you. You'll end up like that first person in the parable of the sower with the hardened heart. And the word of God is actually being taken away or snatched away by Satan himself. And you are blind. It's true of individuals. Church, this is also true of congregations. That congregations that are willing to forsake the teaching of God's word in certain aspects will find that more and more light will begin to be taken from them. And these churches will walk in darkness. We have to hold fast to what we've already been given. We've been given a faith handed down to us for 2,000 years. 
We've been given a, a gospel deposit that we're not meant to try to reinvent. We're just, we're meant to hold on to it and steward it and share it with other people. And if we start forsaking God's word and treating it lightly in one area, watch as darkness spreads throughout our congregation in other areas. And this is true of denominations. So brothers and sisters, we must pay attention to what we hear. If we have ears to hear, let us hear what Jesus is saying. Let's move on to insight number two. This is in verses 26 through 29. God's kingdom, though slow, is growing by God's power. God's kingdom, though slow, is growing by God's power. Let's read the parable again. Verse 26, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now this parable, in my opinion, is is slightly easier to grasp than the last one. But here's what Jesus says. He says, this is what God's kingdom is like. Let me give you some more insight into the true nature of the kingdom of God. He says, it's like a farmer who goes out and he just sows seed. Once he does, the seed takes on a life of its own. Even says he just, he doesn't even know how it happens. The earth just produces it itself. He doesn't understand. He just sows the seed. He goes about his business night and day. Okay, and the night he's going to sleep, he's waking up the next day, night and day. And over this long period of time, this seed has taken on a life of its own. And it begins to grow up until eventually there's a great harvest. Now the parable highlights at least two things. First is it's highlighting how the seed grows quite independent of the farmer's effort. Again, the farmer doesn't even understand how that seed's actually growing. It's a bit of a miracle. It's it's growing on its own. So that's the first thing the parable's emphasizing here, that again, the seed grows quite independent of the farmer's effort. And Jesus says, listen, that's what the kingdom of God is actually like. The growth of God's kingdom depends actually on God's work, not the work of anyone or anything else. The second thing that this parable is getting at is this, that kingdom growth takes time. Notice this farmer's going about his business night and day, night and day, night and day. This is a long period. We know that when seed is sown, it's months until a harvest is gathered. And so we're meant to understand here, again, that kingdom growth is actually something that takes time. So we could say that kingdom growth is both sovereign and slow. It's sovereign and slow. God will do it. There's a certain inevitability to it. Yet the growth is not immediate. Now this would have shattered the misconceptions about the kingdom of God at the time of Jesus, because nobody saw this coming. The scribes and the Pharisees, they thought the kingdom would come in obvious and overpowering ways, not hidden under the surface, not outside of plain sight. And not only that, but they also thought that the kingdom of God was going to come in response to their own efforts. As they began to live righteously, and as more and more Jewish people began to live righteously. When we can get on the right track and we can become obedient enough, then the kingdom of God is going to show up. 
And here's Jesus saying, none of that's true. The actual nature of the kingdom is that God's the one who's going to bring about its growth. And it's actually going to be like a seed hidden in the ground. So much of that growth won't be obvious to your sight. You won't even see it happening. And what a word of comfort for for Mark's first readers. I mean, think about it. Mark's gospel is written decades after Jesus has already gone back to heaven. So here's Jesus. He died a bloody, horrific death on the cross, which the disciples believed was for the forgiveness of of their sins. He rose again, he ascends to heaven, and now decades of time have passed, and his movement is still a small, insignificant thing. Don't you think the disciples were probably beginning to ask themselves some questions? Are we doing this right? Shouldn't things be taking off soon? Isn't the reign of Christ supposed to spread to all the nations? We've barely got a handful of fledgling congregations scattered about in the Roman Empire. Well, Jesus says to that worried heart, relax. The kingdom is growing, mainly in ways you can't even see because the growth is so slow. But just wait, someday, when God comes to judge, there will be a harvest waiting for him. Don't worry about it. And friends, what's true on the macro level is often true on the micro level. The nature of the kingdom is the nature of the kingdom. Kingdom growth is slow and it's dependent on God's work, not ours, ultimately. How easy it is for us to get discouraged and to grow impatient when we're not seeing kingdom fruit from our efforts. Maybe you look at your children who are grown now and you say, "Man, my kids have heard hundreds of sermons throughout their life. We read the Bible to them incessantly as they were under our roof. We always talk to them about spiritual things, and yet there's no evident fruit in their life. God, is this thing on? Is this thing broken? What's going on, Lord? Or or maybe it's not your kids. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's your aging parents. Maybe it's a neighbor you've been neighbors with for 20 years. Maybe it's an employee you've had forever. And you're looking and you're saying, "There, there seems to be zero evidence of growth or fruit or anything. It just seems like nothing's happening. Well, friend, even if it seems like nothing's happening, that doesn't mean that nothing is happening. It could be that something is happening. It's quite possible that God is at work through his word. But oftentimes the work that God is doing through his word in the lives of people is unseen for months, years, even decades sometimes, until someday it produces a harvest. Growth in God's kingdom is dependent on God, and it's often slow. You know, even the dramatic conversions that appear to us to be instantaneous, like this person seemed like they just had no regard for God, and then boom, it's like an Apostle Paul experience. Honestly, that's probably, even though it appears instantaneous to us, not the case. Unknown to us, God has planted seeds. He's watered seeds. It's been working under the soil in that person's life. But all we ever see is when that blade finally bursts through the soil. We're unaware of the work, the little bits of growth that was happening under the surface, hidden from plain sight. And so the encouragement for us, friends, is be prayerful and be patient. Kingdom work is dependent on God's work, not ours. So we need to be prayerful, but it's also slow. We just need to be patient. 
not allow ourselves to grow discouraged. Trust that God will expand his kingdom on his timeline. Okay, unexpected insight number three. God's kingdom, though small, changes the whole world. Here's verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So here again, Jesus is saying, man, I I want you guys to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. And he says, here's what it's like. It's like a mustard seed. Now we should ask ourselves, well, in what way is it like a mustard seed? Well, Jesus helps us to understand that a mustard seed is a tiny, tiny little seed. It's used in literature of this time to refer to the smallest of things. It's a way of just saying, like, imagine the smallest thing that you can think of. Oh, a mustard seed. It's a tiny little seed. But a mustard seed actually grows up into a large plant. I was doing some research on this. Some of these actually can grow in the right conditions, can grow up to 20 feet tall and have substantial branches in them. And so substantial are these branches that even birds can make a home in a mustard plant. It becomes larger than every garden plant. Now, what's meant by this reference to birds making nests in the shade of this plant? You should know that both the prophet Ezekiel as well as the prophet Daniel use this image to speak of a great kingdom. The kingdom in both of their prophecies is going to grow up into a great tree so great that its branches are actually going to provide shelter and shade for the birds of the air. And in those contexts, the birds that are going to find refuge in its shade refer to the surrounding nations. Let me give you just one example. Here's Ezekiel 31, 3 through 6. The prophet Ezekiel says this, behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon. So there it is, Assyria, which was sort of the regional superpower at the time. They're like a mighty cedar, this gigantic strong tree. It says, with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, it's top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. Verse 5, so it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. And under its shadow lived all great nations. So the idea here is that all of the nations are finding refuge and shade. They're living under the greatness of this Assyrian empire. So let's put this all together with Jesus's teaching. Though the kingdom, he says, begins in a tiny, seemingly insignificant way, like a little mustard seed. He says, you guys, you need to know this. It will eventually become the greatest transforming power in the world. That's the destiny of my kingdom. It's going to be the gigantic tree that's going to provide shade 
to all of the nations. Now, to the first readers of Mark's gospel, this must have felt inconceivable. Here they are. They're this tiny, powerless religious minority. They're basically unknown in the world. And the people who did know them didn't like them very much. So they're, they're hearing this and they're going, how could this possibly be? But can't we, with 2,000 years of perspective, begin to see some serious truthfulness to what Jesus is teaching here? What began a small movement among the Jews has now come to include people from every Gentile nation on earth. People from the four corners of the earth have come to find shelter and rest in the shade of God's kingdom. Globally today, more people identify as Christians than any other group. Historically, Christianity radically transformed the Roman Empire, then Europe, then North America, and today, South America, major parts of Africa, Southeast Asia. And still, we know that the transforming work of the kingdom is not yet complete. Jesus will return, and when he does, he will create a new heavens and a new earth where people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will dwell together in the kingdom of our God. Now, if I were a betting man, and I'm not, I would bet that many people, probably some of us, living in progressive places like Santa Barbara, look at God's kingdom And it appears from our vantage point to be small, weak, and unimpressive. Maybe you would even say that it appears to us that the kingdom of Jesus is actually like in retreat. It almost feels like it's going backward. The parable of the mustard seed is a strong encouragement to take heart. We hear a lot these days about being on the wrong side of history. Oh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. It's, like, it's like, a, like a warning, almost like a threat. Don't, don't find yourself on the wrong side of history. You don't want to be that girl or that guy. And we hear this related to cultural issues, of course, ranging from climate change to abortion to LGBTQIA plus issues and so on and so forth. Friends, at the end of the day, here's what we can know for sure. If you are a person who is hearing and heeding the words of Christ... You are on the right side of history. Period. If you are a person who is hearing and heeding the words of Christ, you are on the right side of history. His kingdom is the only kingdom that will last, and his kingdom is the greatest force for good in the world. Period. So we can take heart. We look at the kingdom of God right now, And while it is true that it's exploding in other parts of the world, here we are in the West. And if we just narrow our focus and look look at what's going on around us, we can grow discouraged. Go, oh my gosh, are things going in the wrong direction, friends? They're not going in the wrong direction. Ultimately, the kingdom of God will advance. Jesus will return. And he will rule over the whole earth, all of creation. And those who have put their faith and trust in him will dwell with him forever. In a kingdom that is marked by everything we love in our lives. Peace, joy, righteousness, perpetual love. And a kingdom that banishes everything we hate in our lives. Suffering, pain, conflict, war, disease, death. All of that will be no more. 
I think for me, the great takeaway from these three parables of the kingdom is this. It's quite simple. God is building his kingdom, and I'm very blessed to be a part of it. That's it. God is building his kingdom, and I am very blessed to be a part of it. And so as Jesus' disciple, I just want to, by faith, open myself more and more and more to his word. I want to listen and obey. I want to experience all of the blessings and the growth conceivably possible for Daniel Hooper. Don't you? Isn't that what you want in your life? Well, if it is, why don't we press on together? Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. It really is an astounding privilege to know that as disciples of Jesus, it has been given to us to know the secret of the kingdom of God. And that doesn't mean that we'll understand everything perfectly in the Bible or that we'll understand everything with perfect clarity regarding your kingdom. But it does mean that we'll live in the light, that we'll experience great illumination, and that you will continue to guide us and direct us into blessing forever. And so God, we rejoice in the good news of the gospel That by faith in Christ, yes, all of our sin was paid for on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. Through the resurrection of Christ, even death itself is no longer feared. We will be people of the resurrection. We will experience eternal life. So God, we are so grateful for this good news. Would you continue to give us greater faith? And would you continue to expand our hearts and our minds that we might receive greater and greater light so that we might walk in greater and greater truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.